I, I took that personally before because like, oh, what's the matter? Do I have something? And then I realized they're just worried about Pastor John. If I'm here, that means John's not feeling well. But that's not true. He's out of town. He, he will be back next week. So he's fine. No relapse, no flu, no problem. Uh, so I'm just filling in a uh, wonderful privilege in our stormy day. We, we have a drop of rain outside. <laughs> so we are going to spend our time this morning talking about true love from God's point of view. Because, you know, this is a romantic month. I guess if a month can be romantic, February is a romantic month. I think we had Valentine's Day. Yeah, remember that? Last well, was all the way to last week. And, and at the beginning of our month, Rock of Ages had the, the date night. Right, Ron? Yeah, date night. That was fun. And if you attended that night, then that was a little bit of a preview about what we're going to speak about this morning. And I hope it will have the same impact on you it's had on me. You know, you read a passage of Scripture and you think, oh, good, I understand it. And then you come back and read it again and realize there's so much more there than you saw before. It's just deeper and deeper and deeper. So uh, in honor of February, in honor of all the pink and red flowers and, and, and hearts still around, I thought I would start the message today by quoting to you the lyrics to one of the best-known love songs of all time. So here I go. Best known love song. Here's the lyrics. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. You know that little song? You ever thought about the words? You probably will by the time this message is over. Because these sweet little childlike words ask us a really important question. And here's the question. Jesus loves me, this I know. Do I really know that? Do I know it for certain? Do you? Do you know for certain that Jesus loves you? I hope so. And here's the challenge then. If we know that he loves us, what is his love supposed to mean to us? Is our life supposed to be impacted in some way if we know that Jesus loves us? And if it's supposed to be impacted, how? So that's what we're going to look at in God's word. But first, please join me in prayer. Dear Father, anytime we, we come, we're first just filled with joy that you have allowed us to be in a country that can worship you freely. We thank you for this building. We thank you for everyone here. And Lord, we thank you for your son who came and he died and he gave us the example we're going to look at this morning. And Father, we would never want to open your word and just hear my point of view. Lord, your word is alive. We don't want to teach it. We want to release it. Please release your word into our lives. Let it permeate our hearts and touch us, Father, where we need healing, where we need understanding, where we need better clarity, where we need hope, even where we need conviction. Father, let us see with our hearts the glory that is you. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Please turn to John chapter 13 to see what the Bible tells us about the love of Jesus. And I want to set the context for you real quick. Not the co biblical context. We'll get to that in a minute. I want to 
talk about the social context of where we live right now. All around the world, the world is shouting a message that is much different than what Jesus is quietly demonstrating in the passage we're going to look at. We live in a self-centered society. I don't think that's a news bulletin for anybody. I think we all would agree that's true. Our culture encourages self-pride and self-promotion. There was a time when I think if you walked up and asked somebody, what is the slogan of, of our country? People would say, in God we trust. I think now, uh, if you ask a lot of people, they would probably say the slogan of our country is, me first. Or look at me. I think all across this country, millions of people rise early and pledge allegiance to themselves. Our culture has an eye obsession. 200 years ago, when I was in junior college, <laughs> our speech professor gave us this assignment. We were supposed to turn to the person that was seated next to us and turn our desks and face each other, and we were supposed to have a conversation. We could talk about whatever we wanted to talk about. There was only one rule. We could not use any personal pronouns. I could not say I, me, my, myself, or refer to me in any way. And we had, we had a, our watches to time. And, the, and the, the rule was, see how, many, how long you could go. And every time somebody said one of those forbidden words, you had to reset your time. It's really difficult. Try to have a conversation where you don't talk about yourself in any way. Don't try that right now. Maybe when you get home, it's, it's, it's tricky. Self-pride... Self-promotion have become virtues in our society. We, we honor people that call attention to themselves. If you, if you don't believe me, go to a little sporting event with little kids and watch. They're learning their end zone dance and all that stuff before they even learn how to play the game. It's all about self-promotion. And the idea of humility is seen by many people as a weakness. I think a lot of people would say if you're humble, it just means you lack the self-confidence to be cocky. This pulpit does not protect me from being self-centered any more than those chairs protect you. Any of us can become prideful. This is nothing new. Jesus spoke about against prideful attitudes in his ministry with his words and with his life and nowhere more clearly than what we're going to read here in John 13. Let's look at verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This passage, let me set the biblical context now. This passage takes place at the end of a very busy week. It was Jesus' last week on earth. At the beginning of the week, he entered Jerusalem with, with, uh, with triumph. People took their cloaks off and put them in the street, and they cut down palm branches and laid them in the street, and they lined the street, and they cheered him when he came in. The Bible tells us that some people did not know who he was and they would ask, oh, who's that? And the answer was, oh, he's a great prophet. But they also cheered him as if he was Messiah. So he had this wonderful welcome at the beginning of the week. John 13 takes place at the end of that week where now Jesus has finished his public ministry and he's wrapping up his time on earth with a private ministry with those that had received him. And John chapters 13 to 17 give us the Lord's farewell, kind of a farewell message on the night that he was betrayed and arrested. And in John 13, we find Jesus alone. 
He's alone in a room. We call this the Last Supper. He's with his disciples, and he knew that in a short amount of time he would be arrested and betrayed, and then he would be crucified the next day. This was their Last Supper together. Jesus knew that. The disciples did not. And Jesus used this last few hours on earth to show us the amazing truth about true love. It is critical in our walk with him that we understand what true love means from God's point of view. At the end of verse 1, it says, Having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the end. In the Greek, to the end means he loved to perfection, to the uttermost, to the fullness of love. His love is perfect. Why do we need to know that? Why is that important to you and I today? Why is it important for us to know that his love is perfect? It's important for us to understand it in this because his love is different than ours in this very important way. Our love ebbs and flows. For us, the longer we get to know someone, the more we love them. And sometimes the more we get to know them, the less we love them. That can happen too. There was a song in 1969 by The Spiral Staircase, and the chorus went, I love you more today than yesterday, but not as much as tomorrow. You remember that song? That song pretty much expresses the human heart. That's how we love. Our love grows over time, and yeah, it lessens over time. And sometimes our love is strong one moment and it's gone the next because human love can be fickle. Buck Owens sang, I searched the world over and I thought I found true love. You met another and you were gone. Very popular song back a few years ago. It expresses the human condition. But John 13, 1 says Jesus doesn't love like that. His love is not fickle. His love does not ebb and flow. It is perfect. So Jesus does not love you and me more when we're good. And he doesn't love us less when we're not so good. The love of Jesus does not change based on our behavior or based on time or anything. In the book Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer, this is a book that the men will be studying on first Monday of every month with Pastor John. A.W. Tozer wrote this. He said, The Lord is immutable, which means that he has never changed and can never change in any smallest measure. To change, he would need to go from better to worse or from worse to better. He cannot do either. For being perfect, he cannot become more perfect. And if he were to become less perfect, he would be less than God. We can count on the perfect love of Jesus always. We can bet our eternal souls on it. When verse 1 says that Jesus loves to the end, to the end also means to the end of all time, which means his love is everlasting. We will be able to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know forever. 100 trillion, billion, million, gazillion years from now, his love will be just as perfect and will embrace us just as much as it does now. It will never fail. Having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the end. Well, who are his own? We probably want to figure that out because we want to, if we want to be in on that, who, does, who are his own? In the media context of John 13:1, his own refers to the disciples that were there. But in the greater context of this passage in the Bible, his own is every man, woman, and child has put his or her faith in Christ. So, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you realize 
that the Son of God calls you his own? You are his very own. You're precious. Maybe on Valentine's Day, maybe you made a card or you bought a card and you gave it to someone and had a nice little heart on it, maybe a little Cupid in an arrow, and it said, be mine. Well, that was one day out of the year. Every day, Jesus gives us the promise, you're mine. You are my very own. It's personal. People make the mistake of thinking that Jesus loves us in some metaphysical, global, universal way. Nonsense. His love is personal for each one of us. When we sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, we have a lot to sing about. His love is personal, it's perfect, and he will love us forever. What kind of people does Jesus love? How do you get into that club? Do you have to have a certain IQ level? I hope not. Do you have to be particularly gifted? Do you have to be good enough for Jesus to love you? To answer the question, all we have to do is look at those men that were with him, the, one, the men that Jesus said were his own, his disciples. Well, what were they like? Well, if you know anything about the disciples, none of those men could be confused with a Phi Beta Kappa scholar. These were not learned men. These were not brilliant scholars. And they were not gifted members of their religion or their society. The most striking characteristic of the men that Jesus loved and called his own is how incredibly ordinary they were. And if you think about being good enough, these, these men, these ordinary men, were actually kind of messed up. They had issues with pride. They could be selfish, competitive. They were inconsistent. They got confused by what Jesus said and did. They struggled to understand spiritual things. And every time they learned a lesson, we, all we had to do was read the next sentence or turn the page, and it looked like they forgot the lesson. In other words, they sound just like me. And maybe you think they sound like you too. I'm not a songwriter, but maybe we should sing, yes, Jesus loves me. He loves me flaws and all. The Lord delights in loving ordinary people. He loves to use ordinary people like us to do extraordinary things. Think about those disciples again. On their own, they were a rather unimpressive lot. But with Jesus Christ in their lives, these ordinary men changed the world. And they are still influencing us today. And since we saw that the love of Jesus never changes, the love that transformed their lives is the same love that can transform our lives. We too can change the world with Christ. Our world might be our home. It might be this church our workplace, this community, or the planet. There is no limit because the limitation isn't our limitations. It's the Lord who has no limitations whatsoever. Let me ask you a question. And don't answer out loud, but just think this through with me. As I'm talking about changing the world, if I'm as I'm talking about how the Lord can transform and use you, are you struggling with that? Do you sometimes think, oh, I'm no good. You don't know my past. You don't know what I'm dealing with now in the present. I think God uses other people. God doesn't use someone like me. You ever think like that? You know, when we think like that, we're not selling ourselves short. We're selling God short. Because God has promised in his word that he has a perfect plan for us no matter how undesirable 
or insignificant we think we are. He has promised that he will transform us. So listen, if we think we're not the pick of the litter, so to speak, we have great news. We can know that we are the pick of the Lord. Let me show you what I mean. If you'll turn over to to chapter 15 of John. If you're in John 13, just turn over to John 15. And look what Jesus said just a little bit later in the evening. John 15, 16. Bold statement. Jesus told them, telling us, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you can go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Jesus personally chooses you and me if indeed we have given our life to him as our Savior. You're sitting here today. If you've made a commitment to Christ, you're sitting here because God chose you personally. We waste time when we sit around worrying about all the things we can't do, worry about our flaws, our weaknesses. The Lord knows our weaknesses better than we do. Jesus isn't worried. Jesus turns weakness into strength. This is what Paul understood when he wrote something very odd, it would sound. He said, I am well content with weakness. I'm excited about weakness. I feel really good about weakness, he wrote. Because when I am weak, then I am strong in Christ. So if you're sitting here this morning, or you have those doubts, oh man, I'm just too weak, I can't do anything, I've got good news for you. The weaker you are, the stronger you are. The more unsure you are, the more Christ can do in your life. Jesus said that he chose us so that we can go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. This means in Christ, our lives can matter in ways we never thought possible. We can go and do things and have impact on people in places we could never imagine because it's not us, it's Christ in us. Paul wrote it this way in Philippians 4.13. You probably all know this passage where Paul wrote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul didn't say, in Christ I can reach all the low fruit, or I can be a better person, or in Christ I can can go from worse to better, or better to average. No, I can do all things, all things. Paul knew what he was talking about. Paul one time described himself as the worst of all sinners possible. Yet when this worst of all sinners came to Christ, look what he did. He became the first missionary of the gospel, and Paul went on to write 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. Not bad for the worst sinner of all. All that through Christ. The love of Jesus transforms us from useless to useful, from weak to strong. It really hit me this week. Jesus loves me, this I know. If I know that, that's the greatest knowledge I can possibly have. To know that Jesus loves you like this, is the greatest knowledge you and I can possibly have. Let's read on, because you probably need to get home at some point today. So I'll keep going. John 13, verses 2 to 5. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. 
verse 3 is vital that we don't overlook verse 3 because it, it helps us understand everything else we're going to talk about. It says that Jesus knew, so he had this knowledge, he knew that the Father had put all things under his power. How many things were under his power? All. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. This passage is reminding us, confirming with us, and proving to us that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he is. He is the Son of the living God. And God put all power under his feet. This means if Jesus did not want to wash dirty feet, if Jesus did not want to go to the cross, he didn't have to. He had power over all things, including his future. But Jesus was more worried about your future and my future and the future of those people. So he chose to serve. And he chose to die. Let's try to picture this scene at what we call the Last Supper. So Jesus is with his disciples, we're told. And the meal was in progress. They were right in the middle of the meal. So picture the meals you're, when you're with people, like maybe the breakfast we just had in the cafe or the Rock of Ages potlucks we have. You're, you're with a bunch of people. It's in the middle of the meal. So what are you doing? You're laughing, you're talking, you're eating, you're having a good time. But all these people, Jesus and his disciples, they had a problem. It was the same problem everybody in their culture had. These poor people did not have Nikes. They did not have Uggs. So they had open-toed sandals. And wherever they walked, the roads were thick with dust or caked with mud, so their feet got dirty. Everyone had dirty feet. In fact, at that time, in every Jewish home, there would be a washing station right at the door. It was typically a big bowl of water and a towel. And when anybody came over to your house, if you had a Jewish house, it was the job of the lowest slave in the house to go to the door first, get down on his hands and knees, and wash everybody's feet before they entered. I guess this is what you call an entry-level position. Apparently, no one washed Jesus' feet or the disciples' feet. So the Lord, who knew that everything was placed under his power, rose from the table and walked away. You think anybody noticed that Jesus got up in the middle of the meal? Was anybody paying attention? Maybe nobody noticed at first, but then the Lord did something unthinkable. He started taking off his outer clothing. This means he probably removed his outer robe. He took off his belt. Then he removed his inner tunic. He could have had a second tunic, and he just laid them aside to eventually probably be wearing his loincloth. A loincloth was the uniform of the lowest slave. The loincloth was the uniform of worthless people, expendable people. And here was Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, who had power over all things, standing there in front of his men, looking like the lowest of the low. I'll bet at that moment all eating and talking stopped. And everyone stood or sat in stunned silence and just watched. They saw their Messiah wrap a long servant's towel around his waist. They saw their master fill a bowl full of water. And then Jesus got down on the dirty floor and began washing everybody's filthy feet. Just like the lowest servant. Picture this with me. Jesus is washing feet of the disciples. This means, very likely, he went and washed the feet of Judas. Judas. 
And as Jesus washed and dried, tenderly drying Judas' feet, he knew these feet in just a few minutes would be on their way to betray him and sell him out. And then Jesus got up and knelt behind each of the other men and washed and dried the feet of men that he knew these feet would soon be on the run. Because when Jesus was arrested a short time later, his men scattered and abandoned him. And then Jesus probably came to Peter last. And when he's washing Peter's feet, he knew this man Peter would deny and disown him, not once, but three times before the rooster crowed. This scene proves something so marvelous, I can barely say it, because it's hard to fully grasp what this is teaching us. But this is teaching us that Jesus loves people that don't deserve it. Jesus loves people that mess up. Jesus loves people that let him down. Jesus loves you. He loves me. This is called grace. So at the Last Supper, 12 pairs of feet got washed and dried, but there were 13 men in that room. Whose feet didn't get washed? Jesus. Why? Why didn't anyone wash the Lord's feet? Don't you think any of those 12 men, I mean, it's a Jewish custom to have the water at the entrance. Don't you think when those men walked into the room, they didn't see the bowl and the towel there? Didn't one of them look down at the Lord's feet and say, here, Master, let me wash your feet? Or what about once Jesus started doing everybody else's feet. Nobody said, wait, no, Master, stop. Let me do that. Let me finish. Why didn't anybody step up to wash his feet? Luke's gospel gives us a clue why none of the disciples stepped up or stooped down in this case to help. In Luke 22:24, it says, a dispute arose among the disciples as to which one of them was considered to be greatest. The disciples were arguing with each other who was the greatest. Which one of us is the most spiritual? Which one of us deserves this ranking in the kingdom of God? Yeah, I know more verses than you do. I was good on that Old Testament question Jesus asked. I got that one right. You know, I walked on water with Jesus. You sat in the boat. I mean, you know, they were doing this sort of arguing, I would imagine. If you can turn to Matthew's Gospel, 20th chapter, Matthew 20, there's a background story, a backstory that helps us understand how this argument even got started. In Matthew 20, we read that the mother of James and John came to Jesus at one point and said, this was just a short time before this Last Supper, and she said, Lord, please declare that my two sons will sit on your left and right when you go to the kingdom. And she said this in front of the other disciples. (laughs) She Basically, mommy was coming in saying, make sure my boys are promoted above all the others. How do you think that went over with the others? They're standing there hearing that. They started bickering. So look what happened in Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28. Jesus called his disciples together and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Right over their head, apparently. Those words went in one ear right out the other because here it was just a few days later and they they still hadn't finished the argument. They were still bickering with each other. Who was the greatest? So this is just my opinion. But I imagine nobody washed the Lord's feet because they were worried. It's like, if I wash Jesus' feet, I might have to wash some of my other guys' feet too. And all these men were too worried about trying to look like a great leader, not a menial servant. 
it's really important that we see what was going on in that room. The disciples were too involved in self-promotion to serve Jesus or anyone else. They were so self-focused it made them absolutely useless. They could not serve the Lord even at the Last Supper, their last time with him. They couldn't serve the Lord or each other. In churches around the world, it's the same story. We want to look visible. We don't want to look invisible. Spurgeon wrote, There is no great rush after the lowest places. You will rob no one by seeking them. In that upper room, just like in this room or any room, pride blinds us to the needs of others. When we have a prideful attitude, it makes it absolutely impossible to understand the love of Christ. It just can't be done. How can I understand what Jesus is doing if I'm only looking at myself? And how can I possibly understand how to serve you if I'm worried about how you're going to serve me? When Jesus came to wash Peter's feet, Peter was the only one to speak up. If we know anything about Peter, we are not surprised by this. MacArthur one time described Peter as the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. So Peter spoke up. Probably everybody else in that room was thinking the same thing, but Pete was the first one to say something. Look at verse 6 of, of John 13. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Sadly, our English language can't fully translate how emphatic this statement was from Peter. In the Greek, every word Peter said was laced with exclamation points. This is how it should be translated for us if we were going to do it the right way. Peter was saying, Lord, exclamation point. Are you, exclamation point, going to wash, exclamation point, my, exclamation point, feet, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. That was Peter's question. He was astonished. How could he possibly allow Jesus to do this? It would be like for us. If Pastor John came in right now and wanted to wash your feet or my feet, would we let him? Or would that feel really awkward? It felt awkward for Peter. Peter resisted. It's important that we realize Peter's mistake. Otherwise, we're going to make the same one. Peter could not bear to have Jesus perform a lowly act. To Peter, all he could see was Jesus was doing something that was beneath Jesus, beneath him. This is a servant's job. This is not suitable for me or for you. But Jesus wanted Peter to know, and you and I to know, that the King of kings and the Lord of lords is down on the floor washing feet. This is the Son of God with power over all things. And what did he choose to do at that moment? He chose to get dirty, get down on the floor and wash feet. Serving each other in any way we can, is the greatest, highest privilege you and I have in the kingdom of God. Nothing better, nothing higher we can do than to serve. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 20? We read it together. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. The world we live in says the exact opposite to that. If you want to be great, you've got to prove you're better than everyone else. And if you want to be first, you've got to push people out of your way. <laughs> Jesus says, no. No. If you want to be great in God's eyes, serve others. And if you really want to be first, put yourself last. This makes no sense in our me-first world. Honestly, how are you doing with this? 
this making sense to you? Are you struggling a little bit to understand how selfless love really is? If you're struggling, you're in good company. Peter sure was struggling. He was not on the same page with Jesus at all. He was lost and confused by what Jesus was doing. So for all of us that get lost and confused about life sometimes, or maybe all the time, verse 7 is one of the greatest promises in all the scripture. Let's read it together. Verse 7 of John 13 says, Jesus replied to Peter and said, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later, later you'll understand. Jesus knew what Peter was going through. Jesus did not scold Peter. He didn't scold him. Jesus told Peter, it's okay. I know this is hard for you. You don't get it right now, but trust me. You will understand later. Everything you need to know, you will know when you need to know it. Peace flows over us like a river when we realize something, that God always knows exactly what he's doing. And yeah, it's true. Life is a mystery to us. Totally is. But it's never a mystery to the Lord. And whatever questions we have, and I know we have questions, whatever questions we have, the Lord is saying, when the time is right, you will understand everything you need to understand. That is a promise from the Son of God direct to you and me. Peter wasn't buying it, however. Patience was not one of Peter's strong suits, so look how he answered in verse 8 to 9. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Pride. There's pride again. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Wow, he changed his mind so fast, surprised his tongue didn't just snap off the roller. First he says, no, you will never wash my feet. Next second, no, you can't just wash my feet, do more. Peter called Jesus Lord, but Peter was the one acting as Lord by telling Jesus what to do. We have to be so careful in our lives and in our ministries not to fall into that same trap and tell the Lord how to do things in our life, how to run our ministries. Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus knew that if Peter could not accept this smaller act of selfless service, humble service, then Peter would never be able to accept Jesus' most humble act, dying on the cross. The message to us, though, is really important. We're all sinners. And the message is, unless we allow Jesus to wash us, we can have no part in his salvation. Peter got all excited and then said to Jesus, okay, well, instead of a foot washing, give me a bath. Right? Look how the Lord responded in verse 10 to 11. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For Jesus knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. Jesus said to Peter, no, you've had a bath. You don't need another bath. Jesus was using the bath analogy to show that his work, that he is the water, he is the work. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are bathed clean in that moment. We are pure before God. Everything, sin, past, present, and future is dealt with in that moment. We are washed clean in the eyes of God. Judas rejected Jesus, so he was not clean. Jesus said we only need one bath. We are bathed and saved one time for all time. But we still get our feet dirty. How do we do that? Just by walking around. Walking around, stepping into sin over here and sin over there. 
Jesus said when we get our feet dirty, we do not need another bath because we haven't lost our salvation. We've just gotten our feet dirty. So we need to go to him and confess our sins and he will forgive us. The Apostle John understood this because a little later he wrote 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to wash us, to purify us from all unrighteousness. It's really important that we see here that Jesus never criticized those disciples for having dirty feet. He didn't get down on the floor and go, oh my goodness, what did you step in? I'm not washing that. Hey guys, look at this guy's feet over here. You think his is bad? Look at this. And you, we're not even going to go near you. He did not do any of that. Jesus just got down on the floor. He expected those feet to be dirty. That's why he brought the water and the towel. And the Lord expects our feet to be dirty. That's why he gave us the promise in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins to him, he will wash our missteps clean every single time so that we can have our relationship restored and sustained in him. Look at verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. You see that? He gets his clothes, his robes back on. I bet you that room is still dead silent. Then he walked and he sat down. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. I bet you the room got really silent then. I think Jesus might have looked to his right and then looked to his left. And he was looking to a lot of blank expressions or people looking down, not wanting to make eye contact. Because notice nobody spoke up. Nobody knew the answer to that question, not even Peter. You know it's bad when Peter doesn't say anything. Jesus broke the silence by giving them the answer in verse 13 to 15. He said, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus knew how hard this lesson was going to be for his disciples and for you and me. This is hard stuff to understand in our culture that fights against this. So Jesus knew that the words may be hard. So you know what our Savior did? He didn't have the technology then, but if he was here today, what Jesus basically did here is he took a selfie. He took a picture of himself. He said, look, I'm going to give you a picture so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Pictures are great. We love to take pictures. We love to share them. If you have a smartphone, I bet you you have a picture on your wallpaper that you cherish. This picture we have of Jesus on the floor washing feet in John 13 should be a picture that we imprint on our hearts and we should look at them more often than we look at our phones. If we keep the Lord's example fresh in our minds and in front of us at all times, I guarantee it's going to change how we interact with other people, isn't it? It's hard for me to insist on getting my way. It's hard for me to think some job is beneath me or that I'm better than anyone else. When I'm looking at the Son of God, the man with power over all things, on the dirty floor, washing dirty feet of people that don't deserve it. Amen. Thank you. Agree. Jesus gave us his example so we would always know exactly how to serve each other with humble, selfless love. So when we gossip or judge or criticize or complain, we're not washing feet. We're stepping on feet. We're mashing feet. We're stomping feet. But we are called to wash feet. Look at the last two verses, 16 to 17. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. (laughs) Blessing, joy always comes when we obey the word of God. This is also teaching us 
that talking about love or preaching a message on love is not worth a whole lot in the kingdom of God. It's not the speaking, it's the doing, it's the actions. As the Apostle John wrote later in 1 John three eighteen, John wrote, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Love is just not a warm thought and sweet words. Love has to be an action. Has to be. So as we close, I want you to think back to Peter when he was confused about what Jesus was doing and he didn't understand. Remember what our Lord said to him in verse 7 of John 13? He said, you do not understand now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. This is so sweet. Eventually, Peter did completely understand. Exactly as the Lord said in 1 Peter 5, 5. This is what Peter wrote. This was much years later, toward the end of Peter's life. He wrote this. All of you, he's speaking to believers, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Clothe yourselves with humility is more literally translated. Hear this. This is beautiful. Wrap the apron of humility around yourself. Wrap the apron of humility around yourself. Do you think Peter remembered that cloth around his Savior's waist, washing those feet? And Peter understood. It's not lowly. Serving each other is the highest privilege we have. And it is our calling by God. For me, this week, um, it all came down to one key thing that I understood more clearly at the end of studying this than I've ever understood before. In the past, I thought humility was if I thought about you more than I thought about myself. And that's part of it. But this passage in the Word of God has shown me something much more challenging and much more true. True humility from God's point of view is not when I think about you more than I think of myself. True humility is when I'm so aware of Jesus, I'm not thinking about myself at all. Not at all. And that's our challenge. If we can sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, if we know it, do we show it? Our prayer team will be up here in just a moment after we close in prayer. And if you would like prayer for anything going on in your life at all, big, small, it doesn't matter. Please, we have people that would love to serve you today by praying with you. And now will you pray with me as we close? Father, we bow before you, Lord, in just such gratitude for your son. Father, you've put all things under Jesus' control, and he chose to serve in this humble way, and he chose to give us his example, and he chose to die on the cross so that we could live in him. Father, I pray, don't let us be people that come out of this service and think, oh, that was an interesting message, and we just let it go in one ear out the other. Change us, Father, please. Let us be men and women, young people, that grow in our need and our desire to love the way you want us to love. Father, I pray that we would show your love through our actions. Thank you, and we pray all these things in the name that is above every name, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.